We're educating kids for a world that doesn't yet exist. Right? Literally, the top 10 in-demand jobs in 2010 didn't even exist in 2004. Mm. And that was 12 years ago. Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast from Premier Speakers Bureau, featuring in-depth conversations with the world's most in-demand keynote speakers. I'm Brian Lord, president here at Premier Speakers Bureau, and our guest today is Bo Lotto. Bo is an entrepreneur and neuroscientist who is, a world renowned, who is world renowned for his work on how the brain adapts to uncertainty. Bo has worked with groups as diverse as Cirque du Soleil, L'Oreal, Whirlpool, and the London Museum. He's the author of three books, the most recent of which is Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently, and his three main stage TED Talks have over 10 million views, which is what we're really rooting for for this interview as well. So Bo, thank you so much for joining us. Brian, it's great to see you. So I, I'm, just to get right, cut right to the chase, I, before we did this interview, I said, Bo, what are people asking you the most right now? What are clients asking you for? And you said the number one question is, how do I lead and succeed in times of uncertainty and change? So can you kind of get us started on that? Yeah, I mean, that is the, the perennial um, problem, right? That dealing with uncertainty has always been an issue and it always will be an issue. Uh, it's just that now people, the implicit has been made explicit. So how do I actually not just sort of cope and deal with it, but actually how do I do better because of it? And that's what people are really wanting to know. And the answer for that, it, well, I offer, you know, I give people an answer to that, but it's grounded in neuroscience. It's grounded in how did the brain adapt to deal with uncertainty? Because being able to deal with it is why we actually are here, why we're successful. And uh, kind of maybe are there like two or three things to get us started with uh, on, on maybe some ways that the top leaders that you've seen have adapted well during like, you know, just using this most recent time that have adapted well during times of uncertainty? Yeah, well, the first thing to do is to become aware of how and why we hate it so much, right? <laughs> so the challenge is I got I to gotta thrive there. And the irony is that's the only place you can go if you're ever going to do anything interesting. I mean, if you get, you know, people listening, if you think about it, think about the, the most interesting times in your life, the times that you actually did best. They didn't start with knowing. They started with not knowing, mm. right? Which is why I say to people at my talks at the very beginning, I want them to know less at the end than they think they know at the beginning because <laughs> nothing interesting begins with knowing, right? I want them to celebrate doubt. Um, the problem is that we evolve to hate uncertainty, right? So we actually have to have principles that enable us to go to the very place we evolved to avoid, okay? So that's the first bit, is to get people to understand, why am I so afraid of it? Okay. And then what does your brain typically do when you're presented with uncertainty? There's something that's very human, it's very natural, and I call it the certainty trap. When the world changes, almost everything we do is an attempt to stand still. Right? And the metaphor I like to use is imagine um, being on a surfboard mm -hmm. right? and the waves are coming in and what you're trying to do is just balance on your surfboard without falling in. Think of the energy required just to sort of balance there as the waves are coming in. When the obvious solution is to surf with the waves, right? to move with the waves. The problem is when we move, we, we are stepping into uncertainty. So that's the first thing is to become aware of that I hate it. And then what does my brain typically do when I face with it? And then what should, should it do? And the answer is that you should learn how to be adaptable, right? The most successful systems in nature, they don't just adapt, they're adaptable. How so do you, what are the principles of that? Yeah. yeah. 
And I mean, that's one of those things I'm always curious to like with with you. Are there ever times where you mentally know that you should adapt or change in a certain, but you you almost like physically don't want to? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, one of the reasons why I study uncertainty is is that I hate it like anyone else. Right. <laughs> but the but what I've realized throughout my own personal life and also because there is a place that you actually love uncertainty. I mean, and, you know, I could ask you, I can, I mean, think for yourself, where do you actually love it? You don't just seek it out. I mean, you don't just tolerate, you actually love it. You seek it out. Part of it is, is the fear of messing up, but also I like new things. Like I, I, like I do like new things, new challenges, you know, like when COVID came around, like that was, there's that like a day or two of kind of being afraid. And then like, holy cow, if we do these things, it will result in this, this, and this, if things go well, you know, and that that's like, not from like the, the, obviously the physical thing, but from a business standpoint. Yes. So you're engaging in the world with a certain mindset and that mindset is an evolved mindset and it's play. Play is is, is the reason why evolved is because that's the mindset where we actually love uncertainty. But if you had intention to play, you get science. And I would argue anything that is creative is play with uncertainty. And I don't mean like going on a, you know, on a swing or a teeter-tar. It's a way of engaging the world. It's a way of seeing the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's what we're, we, we need to give people those principles that enable them um, to have that mindset and why it's so essential. I'm, I'm curious. So I recently had a speaker on who uh, was from the UK originally, lived in the US a long time, and noticed how people in the UK, US, or Europe and US think differently. Is there any kind of, um, differently from each other, I should say, is there any kind of way that, that companies or people operate differently as they approach uncertainty in general terms from like UK or Europe and the US? Yes and no. Um, the, I would argue that almost all companies try to do the same thing which is they try to maximize efficiency. They start with creativity. Almost every company starts with creativity. They have a great idea. It's why they're successful, right? They had a new idea, a new widget, new way of doing. And then what they do is they quickly shift to efficiency. It's not a bad idea, right? You got to do it. You got to start producing. The problem is they then stop. And almost every company throughout history, in some sense, stops at that point. Um, They don't start the cycle again. And that would be a brilliant idea if it weren't for the fact that the world changes. (laughs) So then what they do is they try to make themselves increasingly efficient. They maybe lay off some people or they try to buy in creativity, right? But what they're doing is they're actually making themselves increasingly inefficient. Mm -hmm. So you could argue that creativity is nothing other than long-term efficiency, right? What they have to do is start that process again. The problem is that the corporate structures are set up to not ask questions. They're set up for answers. And we can all think of it in terms of of conflict, really. Because it's actually, the way companies engage is actually the way the leader engages, right? The personality of the company is very much the personality of the leader. Um, It's their way of being. And the reason is because our brains are infected and are affected by others and the space around us. So I call it the host effect. Um, so if you, when, you know, when you're at the, your last dinner party, think about the personality of the party. It was very much the personality of the host. If the host was really quiet, everyone was quiet. If the host was exuberant, everyone was exuberant, right? So what's really essential for companies, whether they be from Britain or from America, is that leadership because it begins with him or her, right? 
and they have to adopt this way of being. And in doing so, they will effectively inf infect the rest of the organization. And you can see this throughout history. I mean, the personality of Facebook is very much the personality of uh, Zuckerberg, <laughs> right? Um, and so, for instance, open and dynamic uh, hosts or, or CEOs create open and dynamic companies, right? Um, they're much more adaptable. So that's why we often talk to leaders, uh, because we want them in particular to adopt a way of being uh, that enables their whole organization to then adopt that way of being. What are some steps um, that leaders can do to take that? Like, is it something like every three months you have to start something or, or, or how do you get them to sort of automatically kickstart that at certain times? Well, the first step for them is what we call perceptual intelligence, right? And the reason why we, um, and, and this, and I wouldn't say it's three minutes, it's every single day. Mm -hmm. This is a practice. This is how you live your life, right? It's not just when you open up your door and you walk into Google or Microsoft or whatever, right? This is when you are engaging with your partner, if you're engaging with your children. In fact, I mean, just quick side stories. I was giving a talk to one of the top tech companies, the senior leadership top tech companies, and uh, the, the lighting guy came up to me afterward and he literally had tears in his eyes. This has nothing, I'm, I'm just talking about the topic, the content and why it's relevant. Because what I try to do is hit people at the personal level. Mm -hmm. Because I say to them, no matter what I say to you, you're not going to do it until you actually want to. Mm. Right? So often people are looking for rules and rules are for people who don't actually want to. Right? But then you ask people or leaders, when have you ever been accessible of following a set of rules? Right? But when you want to, you don't need rules. We need principles. So for this person, um, what happened is he was going through a divorce. And he said, you know, when I was learning about it, that you're going to talk about perception, I thought, well, that'd be interesting. But now, as a consequence of what I've heard, I'm going to engage in my divorce far, far more differently than I thought I was going to. Hmm. Because this is really all about conflict, um, which is something we can practice every single day. Uh, and the, the beauty of conflict is it's the only place we can go to learn something. All right, so conflict's a beautiful thing. The problem is not conflict is how we enter it in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So leaders, even our training and education, we train people for answers and not questions. You know, we train people to, when they enter conflict, to win, but not learn, right? Mm. It's like, what I'm going to try to do is prove that you're wrong to pull you towards me. Problem is you're going to do exactly opposite. <laughs> so notice we set up conflict to not move, but you only ever learn when you move, mm -hmm. right? But to move is scary, because it means I'm moving away from where I am and maybe into uncertainty, right? So again, it's a certainty trap. We try to do everything we can to stay on that surfboard, to stand still, right? So one practice I give people is next time you're in a conflict, no matter who it's with, but let's say in terms of work, enter that conflict not with certainty. Enter that conflict not with an answer. Enter that conflict with a question, with the desire to understand, right? And then you, what you do is you iterate to better and better questions because finding a great question is very hard. And one of the principal reasons is to ask a question means you have to say, I don't know. And that's very hard for a leader, mm -hmm. right? To say, I don't know. Where did you uh, kind of come up with that idea of, of, you know, like one, I'm always curious, like why someone goes into something like being, you know, neuroscience, becoming a neuroscientist, but also just that, that question, when did you first learn that question of, or uh, how to approach that way of uh, conflict? Was there a certain thing that happened in your life or you just learned about it uh, in a textbook or something? Both. 
right? Because living is a practice, right? Um, and so I've gone through both from my research, this is what I know to be true. This is just biology, right? What I'm trying to do is get people not to change, but to expand their brain. And what I mean by it is literally to increase the connectivity of their brain. And I give them a number of principles by how to do so, like, for instance, creating an enriched environment, right? Because what I'm particularly interested in and have been studying for the last 30 years is adaptability. How do you create an adaptable system? Because we know that the most successful systems in nature are adaptable. Mm. What's more is when you get that, that adaptability, your brain gets an intrinsic reward, Right. It's because which means you get this sort of the endorphins released, the dopamine release, because during evolution, they said, well, that's a good idea. That's going to keep you alive longer. Let's give them an intrinsic reward. So in my own personal life, of course, I've failed all, you know, all um, uh, throughout my throughout my life. I failed in conflict. Right. But the problem is with that is I actually love understanding stuff. Hmm. Right? So I'd, I realized I was having this conflict. It's like I'm trying to prove that I'm wrong and then I'm, or that I'm right. And then I'd realize that I'm not learning anything mm. in that. What's more, it would push people away. Right? And then we're creating a whole environment where people are not going to ask a question, right? etc. So I'd learned this in my own personal life, with my own personal relationships with my children. But also as a scientist, whether it be a neuroscientist or a scientist in general, my aim and the aim of my lab is to understand stuff. Mm-hmm. And you, the science is the place where you actually love asking questions. You love not knowing. So I'm not wedded to who gets the right answer. I'm, ans- I'm interested in getting to that truth. So we practice this in my lab, but my lab is also a business. And so I, for instance, have designers. We've created, we have, we have patents in AR space, um, all kinds of things. And I'd had a designer once and the designer was, you know, he was very, um, was, how do I describe him? He was very certain. <laughs> right. And which meant that whenever we questioned his design, he would get defensive. Right. And defensiveness is what's called one of the four um, uh, um, horsemen. Right. That are predictive of any relationship failing. And I said to them, I'm sorry, you can't stay here because you're creating an environment where people are afraid to ask questions, mm. which is a great environment if you're trying to maximize efficiency. Right. Competition is a great way to maximize, but a terrible way to maximize creativity. Mm. Right. So as part of the leader, I had to sort of give feedback and help create that environment by keeping only those people who have the self-awareness and desire to be able to create such a space. I'm curious when you founded that. So I'm, I'm like Lab of Misfits, such a great name. Uh, where did you come up with that idea for the group and how did you begin? Obviously it's grown, but how did you start putting it together? So the Lab of Mystics has been around for about 15, 20 years. And how I started putting it together is I was realizing that perception underpins everything it is to be human. So of course I study perception because I'm interested in how the brain works, I'm interested in what it is to be human. But once you understand those principles of perception, you realize by giving them to people, they then have agency over how and why they see. Right? So if behavioral change begins with perceptual change, but you don't know how and why you see what you do, you're just going to always be reflexive. Mm. Now, your brain is going to tell you a story that you have agency, but you don't. You're just literally re- responding just as a doctor hits your patellar tendon. So you only have a choice when you know you have one. <laughs> right? right? So by becoming aware of why I'm seeing something, only then you have the possibility of seeing differently. So that's when we started this business. 
of helping brands, um, both in you know working with senior leaders, but also helping brands take agency and how do they become more innovative. Um, and so with them, for instance, we work with them to help them better understand the business that they're actually in from the perspective of the brain. For instance, Cirque du Soleil. Mm. When we w- worked with Cirque, we said, you know, your business is not, is not um, circus. It's like, what do you mean our business? No, your business is on wonder, right? That's why people are buying a ticket, right? To the extent you facilitate on wonder, you will be successful, okay? The circus is a mediator of that. Similarly, we worked with Asurian, which is a tech support company. We said, your business is not tech support. Your business is frustration, right? People are calling in because they're frustrated. So your business is about decreasing that frustration. So then we worked with them, did research and what happens to your brain when you're frustrated, especially with technology. And we found these tremendous answers. And that then became part of the PR and marketing communications campaign, but also their business strategy. Mm-hmm. But it enabled them to also to become more adaptable because with Cirque, they were recently bought by a bigger company and they wanted to become the largest public entertainments company in the world. Well, circus doesn't scale like that. But on wonder does, right? That's a, a, a framework from which you can have many different directions. I'm curious. Uh, so obviously you've been doing this a long time. How did the, your lab of misfits and this approach help you have a head start on dealing with companies, dealing with everything that came with COVID? Oh, yeah. I mean, interestingly, I mean, we've been studying this for 20, 30 years, right? From the mathematics, right? The way to the human behavior. Um, and then when COVID came, and now we hear the word uncertainty all the time. Mm-hmm. And my argument is that's always been true. It's just that the implicit has been made explicit. So companies and leaders and individuals are only becoming aware in some sense for the very first time. It's always been present in their mind. And they've been responding to it, but they didn't know they were being directly affected by uncertainty. Mm. Um, so, but because of our research, we effectively had 20 years head start on thinking about how to deal with it and why you need to deal with it, right? So that's what, um, uh, that was our advantage and something that was very useful for us because it's also one of the biggest sources of anxiety. I'd argue that uncertainty is one of the biggest sources of emotional and physical unwellness, whether at a personal level or at a corporate level. How, what's the most successful way that you've seen to deal with that from, uh, deal with how you deal with uncertainty? maybe from an emotional level. Yeah, one of the really important aims of my, of my presentations when I'm working with a company is that wanting to, okay? Um, and that's one, and being evidence-driven, evidence-based, and then being someone who actually is in business and actually applies these things as well. So it's not just academic theoretical, okay? Um, so first, the wanting to. So the, the talks for me are, I get people standing up, they're, they're conducting a piece of music. I want them to walk away with the desire to go to the very place they typically avoid. So at the very deep emotional level, I want them to see why it matters for them personally. How will they be better? How are they gonna have better relationships? How are they gonna be more successful in their businesses and create more successful businesses and teams, right? Um, so that's one level I want them to do is to have that want to. And then that want to gets grounded in evidence. So it's not just philosophy. It's like, oh, okay, I can trust this because we're just talking about biology here, right? Um, It's not just, you know, an N of one. So often people say, well, this is what worked for me. Why don't you do it, right? 
So there's, an, and then it's um, having that sense of trust that someone who's actually in business um, and is applying the same principles, again, gives them that trust to be able to step forward and, and, and go into uncertainty and apply these principles, not rules, but principles. Yeah, and that's one of those things that I've, I've just listening to you talk between principles and adaptability, because a lot of times you think of these principles are things that don't change. Like this is the core of who I am, that's gonna change. Uh, and adaptability is something that is changing all the time. How do yeah. you reconcile those two things? Okay, so the distinction is first of all between rules and principles, the distinction I make. So rules are very efficient. They're very specific to a context. It's like a recipe. Think about the difference between a sous chef and a chef, right? The sous chef is following a set of rules because he or she is like, cut the carrots like this because everything's been worked out and their success is dependent on how quickly and how well they follow those rules. Mm -hmm. But there's very little thinking involved, okay? Whereas a chef has to follow principles, okay? If, for instance, say the basil's missing, the sous chef has no idea what they should do. Right? <laughs> right. But the chef knows why the basil's there in the first place. It's because, let's say he's trying to create contrast or she's trying to create um, a complexity. Okay, the basil's missing. I know why it's there. I have a principle. I can now adapt. So principles transcend context. Rules are very specific to a context. And my argument is, in, in many senses, we actually need both. Great leaders have both. Okay? So E equals MC squared is a principle. It doesn't care if it's the moon or a planet or a sun or a chicken, right? It's relevant across the board. And that's what our brain is constantly looking for, our principles. Because if I can give you principles, now you can take that away and you can apply it to your own business in many different ways. And what's more, you can then generalize and you can now adapt to new circumstances, to contexts that you didn't foresee, because that's the whole point of uncertainty. That's the whole point of change is that life is unpredictable and it's always going to be. COVID is not new in that sense, mm. right? There's going to be something else that's going to come up, whether it be a war in Ukraine, a new vote, right? A new CEO, right? There's always going to be uncertainty. So you need those principles and that desire to actually want to adapt to change. And in fact, the most sought after skill now by senior leaders in business is number one is creativity and number three is adaptability. And I'd argue creativity falls within adaptability. So having that ability and those skills to be able to change with change is actually what leaders are looking for. And my argument is that leaders have to have it themselves. And what was you said one and one and two and three, or what was that again? First one's creativity okay. and the third one's adaptability. This was a LinkedIn survey. Oh, okay. And I'd argue creativity falls within adaptability. Okay. So creativity okay. is part of being adaptable. All right, I was making sure I didn't miss number two in there. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm paying attention at least. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, so last question here. I know uh, I have kids. You mentioned that you have kids. Is there, how do you uh, kind of break this down to their level? Like, you know, I want you to know less by the time you leave this house than when you came into it. But, uh, you know, what are some of those things? How do you break it down for your kids and anything else that they apply, you know, dad's knowledge? Yeah, um, well, actually, I do this all the time. And first of all, I've, one of my sons is the youngest public scientist in the world, right? Um, because of the education program that we actually created. So we're actually applying these ideas and the principles in education itself. Hmm. Because right now our education system is, is predicated on the Victorians, where it was a really good idea to be efficient, right? The world was very chaotic. We needed actually organization, efficiency. The problem is what was once useful 
is no longer useful. Mm. We need to evolve it. So we've actually are creating and have created a science education program that resulted in the youngest public scientist world and the youngest ever main stage TED speaker. So we're applying these same principles because what they need to do, we're educating kids for a world that doesn't yet exist. Right? Literally, the top 10 in-demand jobs in 2010 didn't even exist in 2004. Mm. And that was 12 years ago. Okay? <laughs> so they, and as a consequence, young people are, at, we have increased anxiety. We have increased loneliness, increased suicide, because they are, because they're being educated with past skills, educated for efficiency, educated for answers, but in a world that's incredibly flexible, right? And it doesn't match. So we need to educate them again to become adaptable individuals that they could apply no matter whether they're a lawyer or business or some other career that we have yet to, to imagine. So with my own kids, um, I work with them directly as a father. They're, they're 20, 22, and 24 years old. Uh, they're all in the UK and Bristol. And um, they are a remarkable, adaptable people. But I, one of the principles I apply um, as a father is the same thing I would suggest that um, leaders apply, is I call it the sandbar. Right? Leaders have to be the sandbar because you can't step into uncertainty if you don't have a certainty from which to step. Hmm. That's parenting. That's a leader, right? And I say to them, look, I'm not your boat, right? There's a, there's a you can hear a seaplane right over there and, and there are boats out there, right? I'm not your boat. I'm not going to take you to pull you out of the water and take you to their side because you like to swim, but I'm your sandbar, right? You're going to get tired, but you can come back here, stand on the sandbar and you can rest. And then when you're ready, you can start swimming again and then come back and eventually you're going to swim to the other side, hmm. right? And so... That's what I think leaders have, and that's one of my primary roles, and that's what I think love is, is to be a sandbar for the people you love. But I think the principles are the same when it comes to leadership. Great. Well, Bo, thank you so much for, for sharing these, uh, um, you know, so many of these thoughts on neuroscience, adaptability, um, you know, family here at the end here. So thank you so much for sharing that and for being a guest here on the podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guest, visit premierspeakers.com. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen.